This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for April 22nd, 2010. I'm Jeff Hughes. We can be found at CanadianDimension.com. On the program today, executive producer Cy Gonick speaks with Richard Fidler about the life and passing of Quebec firebrand Michel Chantreau. I'll have a conversation with Karen Spring of RightsAction.org and we've contacted her in Honduras. Also, Saigonic will talk to Chris Webb, and he'll be reviewing the events that occurred at the Toronto's Workers' Assembly that recently occurred. We'll also have Music is the Weapon, the alert headlines, and Around the Left. And these are the alert headlines for April 22, 2010. In an unprecedented development, more than 500 recipients of the prestigious Order of Canada have come together to call on governments around the world, including Canada, to bring about the elimination of nuclear weapons. This is the first time that so many recipients of the Order of Canada have signed a common declaration. The statement urges United Nations members to endorse and begin negotiations for a nuclear weapons convention as proposed by the UN Secretary General in his five-point plan for nuclear disarmament. At least 15,000 people from worldwide indigenous movements and civil society groups and representatives from 90 governments are attending an alternative climate change summit this week in Bolivia. The World People's Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth takes place in the city of Cochabamba. This meeting is seen as a grassroots alternative to last December's United Nations Climate Change Summit in Copenhagen. Bolivian President Evo Morales is expected to propose a global referendum during the summit which will seek to ask up to 2 billion people their views on how to tackle climate change. The summit will be used to present draft proposals to the UN Climate Change Summit in Mexico later this year. The B.C. government has approved a $6.6 billion plan to build a massive hydroelectric dam on the Peace River nearly 40 years after it was first proposed. Completed, the $6 billion mega-project will stretch 11,000 meters and pump out 4,600 gigawatt-hours of electricity each year, enough to power about 460,000 homes. The Council of Treaty 8 Chiefs, representing First Nations in the Peace region, said in a release that when combined with forestry, oil, and gas, and mining projects, the dam would cause irrevocable damage to fish, wildlife, and local agriculture. The Sierra Club called the decision to proceed with the dam misguided. An immediate side effect would be the flooding of approximately 5,340 hectares of pristine agricultural land along the Peace River. Critics of the plan are expected to gather Monday at Hudson's Hope to voice their opposition to the massive dam. The dam has drawn stiff criticism since it was first touted as a sure way the province could achieve its goal of energy self-sufficiency. 
Israel must recognize that the world will not put up with decades more of Israeli rule over the Palestinian people, said Ehud Barak, the country's defense minister. Barak said the world isn't willing to accept that Israel will rule another people for decades more. Ehud Barak's comments came against the backdrop of severe friction between the U.S. and Israel over an impasse in peacemaking. Last week, President Barack Obama issued a surprisingly pessimistic assessment of peacemaking prospects, saying the U.S. couldn't force its will on Israelis and Palestinians if they weren't interested in making the compromises necessary to end their decades-old conflict. Toronto city bureaucrats may withdraw funding from Pride Toronto next year if the activist group Queers Against Israeli Apartheid is allowed to march in this summer's Pride parade. The city, which gave Pride $121,000 in 2009, believes its anti-discrimination policy was likely violated by Queers Against Israeli Apartheid's conduct and very presence at last summer's parade. QAIA members L. Flanders called the city's warning shameful. QAIA, she said, merely seeks to express a political opinion at an event with a long political history. U.S. President Barack Obama is scheduled to announce a plan this week that will call for reforms and regulations on Wall Street. Obama will make a speech at Cooper Union, a college a few kilometers from Wall Street, stepping up a campaign to enact what he has billed as the most sweeping regula- regulatory reform law since the 1930s. The president is seeking to turn up the heat on Republicans ahead of midterm elections in November as he pursues tighter restrictions on Wall Street practices and tries to introduce a new consumer financial protection agency. Obama has pledged to veto any Wall Street reform bill that lacks tough new rules to regulate the trade of of derivatives, a class of asset implicated in sparking the financial crisis. Ecuador, following in the footsteps of its ally Venezuela, has threatened to expropriate the holdings of foreign oil companies unless they agree to hand over more oil revenue to the cash-strapped government. President Rafael Correa's government has been pushing to tear up contracts that allow private oil operations to benefit directly from the oil they produce and substituting contracts that will pay oil companies a production fee and reimburse them their investment costs. A widow of one of the 29 people killed in the West Virginia mining disaster earlier this month has filed a wrongful death suit against the mine's owner, Massey Energy. The suit from Marlene Griffith accuses Massey of aggravated conduct in its handling of working conditions and safety violations at the mine. The Upper Big Branch explosion was the worst mining disaster in 40 years. Massey Energy has been cited for thousands of safety violations in recent years, with 57 citations just last month. British train drivers union Aslef is planning to put in a bid to run a main railway line as a not-for-profit business. The East Coast Main Line, which runs from London to Scotland via Leeds, was nationalized last year. Aslef said it wanted to show how services could be improved without spending more money. The union said it intended to draw up a manifesto to examine what passengers, employees, business and freight users wanted from a railway. U.S. actor Danny Glover and 11 others were arrested Friday at a protest outside the U.S. headquarters of French company Sodexo, which workers accuse of union bashing and poor working conditions. Glover was taken away in handcuffs along with the outgoing head of the Service Employees International Union, Andy Stern, and several others after crossing a police line outside the U.S. offices of the food services firm. 
The rally was the latest in a series of protests and civil disobedience actions across the United States against Sodexo, which workers and trade unions accuse of paying an unlivable wage and offering poor benefits. Alejandro Robena, Cuba's most acclaimed tobacco grower, died on Saturday, April 17th at his home in Pinar del Rio following a long battle with cancer. He was 91. Mr. Robena, the only grower to have a brand of Cuban cigars named after him, had been a roving ambassador for the country's state-run cigar industry. But more typically, he could be found on his small farm in the western region of Cuba tending his beloved tobacco plants. He was famous for their quality and always told visitors, you have to love the land to care for it. And those are the alert headlines for April 22, 2010. And now around the left for April 22, 2010. Project Fly Home is organizing a sanctions-busting telethon on April 28th in support of Abusfian Abdelrazik, who, in 2006, was placed on the United Nations no-fly list. Aside from being prevented from flying, this list also imposes sanctions that prevent Abdelrazik from earning a salary, receiving any money, or maintaining a bank account. This makes rebuilding his life impossible. On April 28th, between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m., call 1-877-737-4070 to make a donation to Mr. Abdelrazik. Tune in to watch the telethon live broadcast on Rabble TV at www.rabble.ca. PsychOut, a conference for organizing resistance against psychiatry, takes place May 7th and May 8th at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. The purpose of this conference is to provide a forum for psychiatric survivors, mad people, activists, scholars, students, radical professionals, and artists from around the world to come together and share experiences of organizing against psychiatry. Speakers include Dr. Bonnie Burstow, David Oakes, Peter Lehman, and Dan Taylor. The annual Canadian Dimension Dinner fundraiser has now been named in honor of Gil Levine. This year's Gil Levine Memorial Dinner is on May 8th at the Plant Recreation Center in Ottawa. Sam Gindin will be the featured speaker and will discuss rebuilding the left in a capitalist recession. Tickets are $50 per person and include a one-year subscription to Canadian Dimension magazine. To find out how to purchase tickets, go and click on events at canadiandimension.com. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East are sponsoring a speaking tour of 2010 Nobel Prize nominee Dr. Mustafa Barghouti. Dr. Barghouti will discuss various aspects of Palestinian political dynamics and his own perspectives regarding a just peace between Israelis and Palestinians in a series of public forums entitled Palestinian Political Dynamics and the Realities for Middle East Peace. Dr. Barghouti will be in Ottawa on May 6th, Montreal on the 7th, and on the 8th he will be in London for an afternoon lecture and in Toronto during that evening. For more details and to buy tickets, go to www.cjpme.org. During the month of May, people from across the country will be celebrating labor and the arts as part of the annual May Works and May Day festivals. Here are a few May Day events happening across the country. Toronto's May Works Festival begins April 24th and runs until May 2nd. Meet at the Hamilton Convention Centre on May 1st at 1pm to march through the downtown core. The annual May Day Banquet in Winnipeg is being held at the Fort Gary Hotel on May 2nd. 
Join Greg Albo, Ariel Tequi Deranger, and Peter Garden at Wascana Place in Regina on the 1st for a discussion on building a new left movement. If you're in, Van- in Vancouver on May 1st, head downtown to the Rizome Cafe for performances, speakers, DJ, and music. For more info on these and more May Day events, check out the events page at CanadianDimension.com. And that's Around the Left for April 22nd, 2010. This is Alert Radio. We're at CanadianDimension.com. My name is Cy Gonick. I'm the executive producer of Alert and the publisher and uh, editor of Canadian Dimension magazine. The firebrand Michel Chartrand, an outstanding leader of the Quebec labor, sovereigntist, socialist, and social justice movement, died on April the 12th. He was 93 years old. Michel Chartrand is known by very few among alert listeners, but we believe he should be known. So we have invited Richard Fiddler, a longtime activist and writer and member of the Socialist Project, to tell us about him. Richard resides in Ottawa, where we contacted him at his home. Welcome back to Alert Radio, Richard Fiddler. Hello, Sai. Glad to be here. Okay. As we said in our introduction, few of us have even heard of Michel Chartrand. That's undoubtedly because the English-Canadian media's coverage of Quebec is so poor. Michel Chartrand first came to my attention at the time of the FLQ crisis. He was among the 400 or so activists and intellectuals arrested during the army occupation of Quebec in 1971. Together with Alvin Finkel, I interviewed him for Canadian Dimension when he was conducting a cross-Canada tour after his release. I remember him as a very colorful man, using what we might call very colorful language. <laughs> and uh, first of all, give, us our, give our listeners a quick summary of Michel Chartrand's life. Yes, well, uh, Michel um, came from a rather comfortable middle-class family in Montreal. He was the 13th of 14 children. He was educated at a classical college, Jean de Brébeuf. And then when he was in his teens, he entered the Trappist order. Um, We know them best as the guys at Oka who make great cheese. Um, He left two or three years later, partly for health reasons. He was still a staunch, in fact, right to the end of his life, he was a staunch Catholic. He was active in Catholic action, youth movements, and so on. And then in the 40s, became involved in the labor movement. And he was a leading participant in really some of the major um, labor actions in the 40s and 50s, the asbestos strike in 49, the Murdochville strike in 1957, and so on. Um, in the late 50s, he became a leader of the Quebec wing of the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. And... Um, he was working for the Catholic trade unions at the time. He was fired by Jean Marchand, who later became a liberal cabinet minister. Um, and uh, he was a typographer by trade, so then he set up his own print shop and operated that for about 10 years as a kind of worker co-op. In 1961, Michel, um, along with a fairly large delegation uh, from Quebec, attended the founding convention of the New Democratic Party, and there they fought for and won uh, recognition of Quebec as a nation, which was an innovative idea to most English Canadians in those days. Still is. Um, pardon? Still is. Yes, exactly. Um, but the subsequent history of the NDP in Quebec was rather troubled. Um, the Anglophone 
for the most part Anglophones, um, split with the French component over the question of whether the party in Quebec should be autonomous. And Michel and, and the majority um, went on to found the Parti Socialiste de Québec, the Socialist Party of Quebec, which was generally to the left of the NDP. Uh, in the late 1960s, however, most of the left in Quebec went toward the Parti Québécois, which had just been founded by uh, René Lévesque. Michel went back to union work, and he headed up the Montreal Council of the CSN, the, the formerly Catholic Union Federation, for about 10 years. And this was a period of major social upheaval in Quebec. In 1970, as you mentioned, he was jailed for four months under the war measures in the October crisis. And uh, in later years, he went on to be a workers' advocate and uh, an independentist socialist. Okay. Uh, uh, splendid. Uh, so what were his seminal ideas about uh, trade unionism, uh, Quebec independence, and how socialism would be achieved in Canada? Michel was a, a very strong um, advocate of the Second Front, the idea that unions should not uh, confine themselves to bread-and-butter issues, business unionism, um, the administration of collective agreements, but should engage as well in political action around important social issues. Um, some notable highlights of his years as a CSN leader in Montreal include his sponsorship or founding of Quebec Press, which was a popular tabloid newspaper sponsored by the unions, which for a time he hoped would eventually become a daily newspaper of the labor movement. Um, he supported the Front d'Action Politique, which was a left-wing party that opposed the Drapeau administration in Montreal. And he was a very active leader in the international solidarity movement, particularly with Chile, Allende's Chile, and with, uh, later on with, with Palestine. Uh, Michel was also a, a very strong, always a strong defender of French language rights, and, uh, and over the years, like many in the nationalist and socialist movements, he became convinced that Quebec had to become an independent country if it was able successfully to defend its distinct language and culture. And that is, that it needed full control over all important areas of jurisdiction. However, he never supported the PQ, which he saw, correctly in my view, as a, as a capitalist party that was incapable of governing Quebec in the interests of working people. His socialism was, I would say, informed by the belief that working people should organize on the basis of, their com of the communities that were most meaningful to them, the trade unions, the cooperatives, and in the case of the Quebecois, the nation, the Quebec nation. But he saw Quebec independence as a step toward stronger, durable alliances with progressives elsewhere, primarily in the, in the rest of Canada and in the world. Uh, in fact, in the PSQ, in the, the, the Socialist Party in the 60s that he headed as president, um, they advocated a social associate state status with Canada, uh, with, the, with the rest of Canada, which was an idea that was later picked up by, of course, uh, René Lévesque, <laughs> with greater success. Um, so I think that's probably the best okay. way to uh, summarize. What uh, and so uh, what was Michel doing in his later years? What were some of the projects he was working on? Well, after he left the CSN staff, that was around 78, I think, 1978, he was, he was already at retirement age. Mm -hmm. uh, Michel organized on behalf of injured workers and for reforms in the uh, Quebec workers' compensation system. 
He was also a very strong supporter of the cooperative movement, and he chaired the board of the CSN's credit union. And he campaigned for um, what he called a citizen's income, a sort of guaranteed annual wage that would be well above the poverty line of official statistics. Hmm. And uh, to, uh, he campaigned across Quebec on that issue, and in 1998 he even ran as a candidate against Lucien Bouchard in the general elections. Bouchard was the then premier, yeah. um, whose uh, PQ government was then implementing a very harsh zero-deficit austerity mm-hmm. policy. Mm-hmm. And Michel's slogan was, zero poverty through a citizenship income. And in um, a somewhat rural riding in, in the Saguenay region, running against Bouchard, he actually got 15% of the vote. Has, has that project survived? Uh, well, that years? was that was he was running actually for a group called the Rassemblement pour une Alternative Politique, which later became one of the components uh, that that resulted in the formation of the of Quebec Solidaire, oh, yeah. which is the left wing party today, still mm-hmm. rather novel in Quebec. So finally, um, Richard, how will you remember him and his lifelong contributions? Uh, so I, I knew Michelle primarily through the knowledge of the events I've described, mm-hmm. partly through the media and so on. But I got to know him personally in the 60s when I was living in Montreal as a student. I was a, I was a member of the PSQ. Mm-hmm. And in the early 70s when, as you mentioned, he was touring Canada as a victim of the war measures. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a guest uh, of Michelle and his wife, Simone Monet, who was herself a leading feminist in Quebec, at their home in Longueuil suburb of Montreal, where he maintained his print shop. Um, at one point in 1964, I interviewed him for the Fair Play for Cuba committee about his trip to Cuba, where he had spent more than three weeks observing the, uh, the revolution in action in its early days. Mm-hmm. He was also a participant in the Quebec-Guantanamo Peace March in the mid-1960s. Mm-hmm. I, I would say Michel will be remembered with great affection by many progressive people in Quebec as a, as a guy who spoke directly and with sure great did. color, as you mentioned, <laughs> and humor against oppression and exploitation. Mm-hmm. He was probably the best-known anti-capitalist in Quebec for many mm-hmm. decades. Mm-hmm. He was also an altermondialist, an opponent of capitalist globalization, long before that term was coined. Mm-hmm. And he had a remarkable facility to articulate an alternative vision of another possible Quebec, one based on solidarity and emancipation. Perhaps I could sum up just a a, a very short quote from a Quebecois friend of mine, a former auto worker at the General Motors plant in St. Therese, who wrote to me last weekend, Michel's death, and I'm quoting him, Michel's death is making me face how much we, the working class, have lost political clout. Chartrand, who advocated all his life that human beings are by essence made to live in collectivity, and to strive for collective happiness, died in a time where individualism is promoted ad nauseum. It is for us to pick up and fight for a better world now. Mm-hmm. Michel won't be there to scream for it. Wow. I think that pretty well sums it up. It sure does. Well, Richard Fiddler, thank you so much for this uh, insight into a, a remarkable uh, life of a remarkable man, Michel Chartrand. Thanks again. My pleasure. That was Richard Fiddler a uh, longtime socialist writer uh, commenting on the passing of firebrand Michel Chartrand. This is Alert Radio. 
If it was not clear before why Canada and the United States are the strongest backer of the Honduran military coup that ousted democratically elected President Zelaya June 28, 2009, and the the regime now in place after fraudulent elections of November 28, 2009, it is now. That is according to RightsAction.org, a leading-edge social justice group that follows events in Honduras as closely as anyone. Alert last spoke with Graham Russell of RightsAction.org. Today, we speak with Karen Spring, a Canadian who is now in Honduras. Welcome to Alert Radio, Karen. Thank you very much. Uh, First, can you tell us uh, how you came to uh, travel to Honduras from Ontario? Yes. Um, well, and actually, I work with Rights Action as well. I work with Graham, uh, who's been on the show before. And after the military coup in um, late June, I got to Honduras in July, late July. And I've been based in Tegucigalpa, which is the capital in Honduras since then, um, basically writing alerts, taking pictures, and um, keeping Rights Action, sending or helping Graham um, send out alerts about what's happening here on the ground in Honduras. Well, according to your organization, last week, Canada's ambassador to Honduras, Neil Reeder, and a group of Canadian businessmen met Honduras Honduras President Porfirio Lobo. Can you tell us about this meeting? What was the Canadian ambassador seeking on behalf of the companies that accompanied him to Honduras? Well, it's um, definitely they arrived to speak to President Lobo because of um, the presence of uh, Canadian mining companies in Honduras, and um, there are a lot of Canadian companies operating here. And because the uh, mining law in Honduras is now being discussed in the Congress, um, and it's being discussed among social organizations as well, um, about potential changes and about what kind of law and what kind of regulations they're going to include in this law. And so the outcome of what's going to happen with this law in Honduras about mining will have a huge influence on whether Canadian companies can continue um, or or reinvest or invest more money in uh, operations here in Honduras. And this is maybe one of the reasons that the ambassador, um, who is clearly um, promoting mining from just from the presence of the investors as well as the um, um, Patch of Downey from the one of a major mining company. He's clearly in favor of um, of mining, and so it's um, in Honduras and Canadian investment. And so it's very clear that um, they're trying to work the angle that they have right now while Pepe Lobo and the Congress are are trying to reevaluate this law. And so what they did is that they they promised that they would increase their investments. They were wanted to increase their investments um, around seven hundred million U.S. dollars in mining and in the maquila sector, and this is a way for them to sort of push and to um, promote their operations in Honduras while this mining law is being discussed in Honduras. Karen Spring, can you remind our listeners across the country what would be so wrong with more Canadian investment in Honduras? Well, specifically with regards to mining, um, and we work specifically with the mining-affected communities in um, Syria Valley, which is roughly 70 kilometers from Tegucigalpa, which is the capital of Honduras. And um, just with this specific community, and there's been other complaints um, in other parts of Honduras with other Canadian mining companies of their poor practices in these communities in terms of contamination, um, you know, totally destroying the environment, causing a lot of social tensions between community members 
and their lack of consulting with the communities prior to setting up uh, their operations. And not to mention, a lot of these communities, at least where Gold Corp, um, who's operating in Syria Valley, um, they're closing down their operations. And there's community members that are still very sick from the contamination. Um, and so the problem with having more, more investment in Honduras by Canadian mining companies is that you're going to see um, a promotion of these poor practices and the continuation of the human rights violations that have been heavily documented both by Rights Action, other international organizations, and then Honduran organizations that work closely with the mining-affected communities. Can you tell us more about the extreme violence, including the death squads that are operating, you would seem, without, with uh, impunity in Honduras? Yes, it's, uh, I'm glad that you asked that because it's a very important issue right now. Um, the political situation in Honduras is not is not good. Um, it's um, there's been a return to this style of the death squads, which is basically targeting um, people that have come out very strongly against the military coup um, since last year and still remain in in, in the resistance movement here. And so there's been death squads and a lot of targeted killings against people that are, that are continuing to participate in this resistance movement. And um, so while all these death squads and, and deaths throughout the country are happening, you know, you have Canadian mining companies saying that they want to invest more in Honduras and they're trying to pressure, you know, the government to, to get their mining, a new mining law um, passed so that they can enter Honduras and start investing more money. And so it's the total of um, recognition of the political situation in the country. The Canadian mining companies just are, are out for the money that they're going to make um, in Honduras, as well as, you know, and then you can even pull that back a step farther and talk about Canada's role, which has been often through mining companies and how they've been totally, um, almost in favor, I'd say, and haven't spoken out against the coup at all, nor about the human rights violations that are happening in the country. Well, this um, is, uh, no doubt, so you have sent... Situation. It's definitely not any situation that, that where mining companies should be promoting their businesses. Honduras has a lot of problems, and death squads are, are a very um, important problem right now. Has there been any response from the government to the information that you have no doubt been sending them? Well, um, with regards to the response to the Canadian government, there's sort of um, Peter Kent, who's the Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Americas in Canada. He's been very quiet about uh, human rights violations, I think, since the coup. I think he finally came out this year in 2010 and said one, made one comment about human rights violations. But when a lot of the repression was happening right after the coup, there was no mention of human rights violations. And there was no major um, complaint or no, no major public announcement that what had happened in Honduras was a military coup. And the response to the Canadian government has been very linked to, um, we believe, to the promotion of um, mining companies and Canadian investments in Honduras. And this is even further, can be further proved by Neil um, Reeder, who is here, who is a Canadian ambassador in Honduras. Um, that's promoting mining and the maquila, which is a stretch-up industry. And so maybe Canada's position, we believe Canada's position since the coup, has been very linked to um, securing their own economic interests in Honduras. And so by not mentioning human rights violations, um, since the coup, they've sort of ignored it, ignored what's happening in the country and continued to push their economic interests, like mining and like sweatshops. 
Karen Spring, how can our listeners keep up with events in Honduras? Well, I think right now what's really important is um, I think the government in Honduras is trying to paint a picture, as well as the governments internationally that are supporting Pepe Lobo's government, they're trying to paint this picture of normality and that nothing's wrong in Honduras and that they've established a truth commission to investigate the human rights violations that have occurred since the coup. Um, and this is, this, is, this is absolutely not true. As you mentioned before, there's death squads, um, and this truth commission has no participation from, the, um, organi- from social organizations in, in, in Honduras as well as the resistance movement. They've been ignored in that process. And so if Canadians are interested in getting involved, I think what's important for them to know now is that there is a Canadian um, man named Michael Kurgin who is now participating in the Truth Commission um, in Honduras, and he um, uh, and and he, he actually works at the University of Ottawa. He's participating in this Truth Commission, and so he's almost you know representing Canada in this false Truth Commission that that really shouldn't be shouldn't be happening, nor should he be participating in because of the problematic situation. Um, that the, in which the Truth Commission was created. With regards to mining, um, the mining um, a struggle right now in Canada, it's really important for Canadians to know that a lot of um, major mining companies are now having their shareholders meetings in the next couple of months, um, Bear Gold and Gold Corp. Um, they have their shareholders meetings coming up, and this is a time when there's going to be a lot of activism organized by social organizations in Canada. Um, so please feel free to contact Rights Action at uh, info at rightsaction.org. If people are interested in learning about the activities around these shareholders' meetings, protests that will be planned, as well as ways that they can contact their MPs and sort of draw their attention to what's happening abroad um, about, about how Canadian mining companies are performing abroad. Karen Spring of rightsaction.org, thank you very much for joining us on Alert Radio. Hello, I'm Saigonic. I am about to interview Chris Webb, who is uh, in Toronto. Uh, Chris is our headline writer, but uh, for this, uh, for the purpose of this uh, this interview, he is our uh, our guest on the show. On April the 18th, uh, Toronto activists held their third workers' assembly. Alert has been following this effort over the past year. Uh, because we think that this is a model that could be adopted in other centers. And um, so we have Chris Webb, who's in Toronto now, and uh, he was attended the uh, April 18th uh, assembly. And uh, welcome uh, to Alert Radio, uh, <laughs> Chris Webb. Thanks, Lance. Good to be back on the show. Right. Okay, you were there, Chris, and you were part of the, uh, you are now part of the Toronto left scene. Let's start off with your take on why the Workers' Assembly was created and the political environment it's working in. Sure. Um, yeah, to give you guys some context for this assembly, it's only the third meeting that's been held. And um, I, I would say that, you know, for the third meeting, it's pretty, it's going really, really well. It's got a really diverse group of people that are coming out uh, that are, I think, truly representative of the left scene in Toronto. Uh, to give you some context, um, I think it was formed at a time when the economic crisis um, is placing a huge burden on the backs of workers. And um, left groups in Toronto, and I'd say across Canada and around the world, weren't really putting out any alternatives or theory or organizing models uh, that were really attractive to people, unlike the right um, that was offering 
uh, a lot of advice that you know wasn't wasn't really beneficial to workers. So um, I, I think that uh, it became apparent to a lot of people organizing in Toronto that it's really not viable for left groups to work um, separate, you know, disparate situations apart from one another, and um, and really offer the same tidal solutions um, <clears throat> to these small fractured groups instead of being a really critical voice for those most affected, being workers, migrants women, students, um, and groups like that. So I think the challenge for this assembly really lies around building new theory, new practice, and new links to unite these groups together. And uh, I think this challenge is directly related to the structure of the assembly, which is actually building these alliances amongst these groups, bringing them together in an environment where they can cooperate around campaigns, they can build alliances, they can build theory, they can build material, and really respond to uh, some of the, the massive cuts that are going on. Uh, in terms of the public sector, or really some of the, the crisis that's being placed on the backs of workers. So I think that's the context the Assembly was formed in. Okay. Um, uh, uh, now, give us a picture of who was there, and um, a kind of breakdown. Not just the numbers, but uh, the ages of the people, the gender breakdown, what groups were there, what organizations, what movements, maybe what, who wasn't there, who you might have expected to be there. Uh, and it's called a, a workers' assembly. Does that mean that people who are interested in the environment or immigration or racism rather than strictly workplace issues would have no place in the assembly? Well, I think your last question, Sai, is directly related to some of the challenges that the assembly is going to face uh, as it moves forward. Right now, the assembly has a membership of about 200 people, and uh, the meeting that happened last Sunday at Ryerson University had about 150 people that showed up. Um, the makeup was pretty diverse. There was a lot of representation from uh, the labor movements. But when I say this, I don't particularly mean people who are in uh, labor administrations or union administrations, but a lot of people who are um, rank-and-file activists who came out to this meeting to make those alliances with other unions. Um, this doesn't mean, though, that it's just representative of labor and union groups. There was, I'd say, quite a good representation of groups like... Uh, Canadians Against Israeli Apartheid, No One Is Illegal, OCAP, uh, and other groups who are fighting for uh, migrant rights, on anti-racism issues, on national solidarity issues, which, um, which I think is really, really important. I mean, especially if you want to build a group that isn't just, um, you know, the, the old white male left, I think you really have to bring these groups around these issues and actually prove to them that, um, that this assembly is effective in coordinating campaigns. Um, and and I really I do think that um, the assembly would will be a forum for bringing these groups together, particularly as it moves forward. I think working with uh, indigenous groups, environmental groups, community-based groups is going to be essential to, to building the power and to building the mobilization around this. Um, All right so then, Chris. Uh, what decisions were made regarding the structure of uh, this organization, the leadership, uh, how decisions are made, and so on? Yeah, well, it's in the very early stages, as I said. So, um, and there was a lot of debate at the assembly about what the structure should be, and I think that's a really healthy debate that needs to happen right now. Um, I, I think it's I think it's really positive that people are raising questions about uh, what democratic, what representative structure we should build, because if we're offering solutions that are proactive rather than reactive to you know build a, a more just and democratic society, we really have to build uh, an institution or an organization that's um, that uh, is representative of those things I was saying. So the decisions that uh, were made were to have an elected coordinating committee, uh, which some people from the floor disagreed with, um, saying that it would be better to have a rotating committee of members 
because this would ensure that there weren't certain members who were dominating the coordinating committee or that certain groups who were at the assembly weren't taking control of the assembly. So, um, but ultimately, it was decided that there would be uh, an elected coordinating committee, and the current coordinating committee was um, given the task of coming up with a proposal for the next meeting that um, really outlines the way that elections will take place uh, to ensure that they are representative of the makeup and the structure and of the current assembly. And, um, uh, and that was that, Chris Webb um, speaking to us from Toronto about the April 18th Toronto Workers' Assembly. Finance Committee, an Internal Education Committee, a Publications Committee, uh, a Labour Caucus, and a Cultural Committee. And these groups have all been working along with the Coordinating Committee in uh, coming up with campaigns that can be worked on. And I think one of the most important things that they've been doing, too, is doing a lot of outreach to groups that are in Toronto, that are on the left, that are working around poverty issues, uh, migrant justice issues, to say to these groups, we don't just want to include you in the work that we're doing, but we actually want to work alongside you in the campaigns that you're doing as well. So I think I think that's been really important, too. Um, another decision that was made in terms of structure is uh, the dues-based structure and whether we should be charging dues for members. Uh, ultimately, that was voted down, which is, I think, a rather good thing at this early stage of the assembly. Um, so, and I think a lot of the concerns that were raised about that was uh, younger people that are joining. Right. The assembly may not know uh, how dues work. They may not be familiar with union structures and issues like that. So ultimately, I, I think all the motions that were put forward and the decisions that were made were, uh, were positive ones. Okay, what uh, campaigns are the, is the, are the assembly working on and... Uh, and how will the assembly work with other groups in Toronto who are already working around poverty and social justice issues? Yeah, there were three main campaigns that were, uh, that were voted on. So the, the first one was a free transit campaign. Um, and I'll say that all these campaigns were voted upon in principle, that the assembly agreed that they were good campaigns to start working on. There was no uh, decisions made regarding tactics, regarding strategy, regarding exactly how we're going to move forward in coordinating these campaigns. Uh, so I'll say the first one was a free transit campaign, which argued, uh, which is going to put forward um, the idea that transit across the city of Toronto should be free on all uh, TTC subways, buses, and streetcars. And I, I think the idea behind this was to really address the, the class-based nature of public transit and that it's um, rising, uh, rising bus fares, rising metro fares, disproportionately affect uh, poor people, working-class people, uh, women, immigrants, uh, groups like that that have been affected not only by the economic crisis but further cutbacks in the public sector. Um, the other campaign that was endorsed was the uh, G20 economic justice activities, which, as many of your listeners uh, will know, the G20 is happening in Toronto this summer. Um, so the Workers' Assembly has been tasked with organizing a series of workshops around economic justice and also a theme day during the protests against the G8 and G20 meetings focused around uh, issues of economic justice. So that was uh, that was voted upon as well, and there was a committee, I believe, started that had started up to, to start organizing some of the workshops and start organizing some of the action. Mm-hmm. Um, the last campaign that was voted on um, sort of ties back into the free public transit campaign, and that is a campaign aimed at um, stopping cuts in the public sector, a public sector fight-back campaign. And it was argued by a lot of people um, on the floor of the assembly, that these two campaigns are linked, that, that uh, transit is a public service, and it also directly relates to the, the class nature um, of the cutbacks that are going on in the public sector. So, uh, and that campaign in particular, there's been an emphasis on working with groups like OCAP, 
uh, and other anti-poverty groups in addressing some of the issues uh, that are occurring uh, in immigrant communities. Okay, Chris Webb, thank you so much for this uh, uh, very clear description of uh, this exciting project, and I hope uh, other people in other centers are listening very carefully and will get there, uh, <laughs> get, uh, get active in the forming their own assemblies. Thanks again, Chris Webb. Thank you, Simon. Bye-bye. And that was Chris Webb speaking to us from Toronto about the April 18th uh, Toronto Workers' Assembly. Hi, this is Mitch Panolik. This is Music is the Weapon. And here is Peter Seeger with Shoshalosha. South African song, Shoshalosha. Now, that song has been in my head since I was a little kid, which is the first time I heard Pete ever sing it. Most people walk around with uh, an awful lot of songs in their head. Actually, most people walk around with the first verse and maybe the chorus of a lot of songs. A couple of years ago at the Ottawa Folk Festival, we created a whole workshop around that idea, and we ended up singing 73 songs in an hour. It was really quite an amazing thing. One of the things I was thinking about when I was putting the show together today was these songs that have been in my head all of my life. And there was there was a South African song. And I decided what I would do is put together a bunch of songs for today, none of which were in English. So here is The Weavers with Hop Shadetti. <laughs> Chitter, 
rada piem, rada dam, cingilingi bum bum bum, nazakalam, pierkodam, cingilingi bum. That was Annabel Chavitzik with Aja Taka Divosha, which I can barely pronounce. And before that, the weavers with Hapshideri. One of my favorite uh, languages that I've ever butchered as a singer is Spanish. I have probably butchered more songs in Spanish, singing along with people than any other. La- you know, I think I, I managed to butcher seven or eight languages. I can't sing, but I sure love songs, and I sure have these things in my head all of my life. And here's a couple of more of my favorite songs, starting with Las Cuatro Generales. Generales, los cuatro generales, los cuatro generales, mamita mía, serán alzados, serán alzados. Para la noche buena, para la noche buena. Para la noche buena, mamita mía, serán arcados, serán arcados. The foreign surgeon generals, the foreign surgeon generals, the foreign surgeon generals, mamita mía, they tried to betray us, they tried to betray us. Next Christmas, holy evening. Next Christmas, holy evening. Next Christmas, holy evening, mamita mia. They'll all be hanging, they'll all be hanging. Madrid, que bien resistes. Madrid, que bien resistes. Madrid, que bien resistes, mamita mía, los bombardeos, los bombardeos. Madrid, you wondrous city, Madrid, you wondrous city, Madrid, you wondrous city, mamita mía, they wanted to take you, they wanted to take you. But your courageous children, But your courageous children, but your courageous children, mamita mia, they did not disgrace you, they did not disgrace you. Los cuatro generales, los cuatro generales, los cuatro generales, mamita mia. Bandera, qué bonita bandera, qué bonita bandera, es la bandera puertorriqueña. 
bandera, qué bonita bandera, qué bonita bandera es la bandera puertorriqueña, qué bonita bandera, qué bonita bandera, qué bonita bandera es la bandera puertorriqueña. Benita Bandera, the song of Puerto Rican independence. I once watched the New York cops trying to remove a Puerto Rican independence sign from a Vietnam demonstration. It was really nice. And before that, the Spanish Civil War classic, Las Cuatros and Alice, as played by Peter Seeger. And that's it for this week, folks. See you next time. And that is Alert Radio for April 22nd, 2010. I'm Jeff Hughes, and we hope that you will join us again next week. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Bedolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com.